0: Hello. And welcome to the August edition of In Conversation with the Lancet HIV's podcast. I'm Philippa Harris, the Deputy Editor, and today I'm talking to John Freighter from the University of Oxford about a study on SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in people with HIV. John and colleagues' paper aside, the August issue has a focus on pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, with articles on incorporating oral PrEP into HIV prevention services for women in South Africa, the long-term effects of PrEP in New South Wales, Australia, and a global summary on oral PrEP use. So we hope you enjoy the issue. Issue. but now to speak to John. Hi John thanks for speaking for, to us today.
1: Hi well, you're welcome it's nice to meet you.
0: <laughs> so could you start by just telling us a bit about what we know about sort of Covid-19 um, and how it affects people living with HIV you know are they more vulnerable um, is there anything they need to be aware of?
1: Yeah so that's a really good question and actually it's probably harder to answer than you might think. I think that at the very beginning when Covid first came to light most of the data seemed to suggest that actually people with HIV weren't affected particularly worse than people without HIV. And that was the message we were first sort of giving out in our clinics. And then there was a sort of trickle of data suggesting that that actually might not be the case. For example, there were studies from South Africa and also studies from the United Kingdom that kind of hinted at the fact that if you lived with HIV, there was possibly an increased risk of death and increased mobility associated with COVID, which sort of obviously raised a few Eyebrows and concerns as to why that might be happening. The, the trouble is, when you sort of dig into that data a bit, it looked like there was an issue around comorbidity. So there was probably an enrichment for people with hypertension, for example, for high, high blood pressure, and other things that we knew might make your risk of COVID higher anyway. And so the question was, how could you tease HIV out of that and say, well, we, we, where is the risk from HIV and where is the risk from the other things? So. So that still wasn't clear. And then some more studies came out a bit later on, one from the US, for example, which suggested that if you were admitted to hospital with COVID and you were living with HIV, then actually, again, your outcome might be worse. But then a a study came out from the United Kingdom that said that actually there wasn't a difference if you were admitted to hospital with COVID and HIV. And so the, the jury was still out. But I think there was a sense that something might not be quite completely level on the playing field. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why the government kind of listed people with HIV as one of the high-risk groups with COVID, certainly for priority for vaccination and also, you know, for for priority for for isolation during the lockdown and and for shielding. Um, So there was a general sort of policy decision that there was enough data that suggested that there might be a problem. Although I think, you know, if you really kind of drill down into the data, you know, there are certainly some holes that we weren't quite sure about. But really, I think everything was changing so fast that it was hard to be sure. And I, I guess the other thing to say is that just kind of to have people with HIV as a, as a bracket um, is probably unfair because there is so much heterogeneity within this one population anyway from people who are doing you know spectacularly well on their antiretroviral therapy with great cd4 counts and undetectable viral loads and really good immune systems compared to people who might have had hiv for many years without therapy in places where therapy is hard to get access to with cd4 counts that are really poor and so you've got a huge range you know within that sort of the phrase people with hiv which probably explains again some of the heterogeneity we see so I think there is probably some people within that group who are likely to do worse with COVID and that raises enough of a sort of a concern to make sure that, you know, we, we, we take the, this group very seriously in terms of kind of policy and things like that. It's difficult. I mean, it's probably not a very clear answer to your question, but it kind of gives you an idea of sort of the kind of the greyness of this area.
0: So you talked about, you know, how in the UK prioritisation of vaccination was something. And obviously, you know, the the sort of, vaccines against you know SARS-CoV-2 I think are probably you know one of the most positive things that have come out of the pandemic but why is it important to do studies specifically looking at people with HIV and, and how well the vaccines work for them
1: yeah i mean a great question I mean, I, I mean as you said it's been amazing really watching the kind of the speed and the success of the vaccine program in, in relation to covid-19 and how that's been rolled out um, and i think you know most of the studies we have seen have been focused on you know people without other sort of serious comorbidities, without necessarily, you know, hematological malignancies or organ transplants or or other things that might impact their immune system. And we know in people without these things that the vaccines work really well. As we now kind of, we can kind of close that chapter and saying, yes, you know, the vaccines work, the vaccines are protective. We now need to think really carefully about the groups where the vaccines might be less effective. And we know, for example, that in people with blood cancers, they may not make as good immune responses to the vaccine as others. And then the question is do people with HIV also fall within this category? Is there a chance that they might not respond as well to vaccination? as people without HIV. And the reason you might think that is because there is history showing that, that for some people, if you vaccinate against hepatitis B, for example, responses aren't so good, they're not sustained as well, um, and you need to do a slightly different regime. And there's also been similar data around flu vaccination, for example, saying that some people with HIV don't respond quite so well um, to flu vaccination. Bearing in mind, there's a, a, a large population of people with HIV both on therapy and off therapy, and they will be impacted by COVID. And so we needed to know pretty urgently whether if a standard vaccination campaign would be adequate, raise the immune responses that you'd need to be seen in this group, or if you needed to do something different or consider other, other approaches. So yeah, so I, I think it, it's a very valid question to be able to say, you know, if you have HIV, you're living with HIV, is it sensible to go ahead and have a vaccine? Can you be confident that that vaccine is going to work if if you go ahead and have it? And we wanted to kind of look at that message and see if we could get an answer and hopefully sort of support the policy on that.
0: That brings us on to your um, study, which is published in the the August issue of the Lancet HIV. So would you like to kind of talk to us a a bit about that, what you did and and what your findings were?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, So so this was a a collaboration with with a a group of of, of clinicians, um, patient representatives, Scientific researchers, and, and, I, and I think actually, you know, one of the nice things that's come out of COVID is this real sort of build towards team science of people working together from many different groups, and this is just another example of that. So with colleagues at St Mary's Hospital in, in London, Sarah Fiddler and at um, St Thomas, the uh, guys in St Thomas Hospital also in London, that was with Julie Fox. We've been looking after kind of the care of, of people with HIV for many, many years and doing a number of studies. Um, and we knew that kind of the vaccine was, was, was going to be rolling out across, you know, our, our sort of patient groups fairly soon. So we wanted to get this study done first of all. So we discussed with the team in Oxford, the Oxford Vaccine Group, led by Andy Pollard and uh, Sarah Gilbert, say, listen, this is a group that's really important. Would you be willing to sort of extend your your large COVID vaccine study, which kind of I think most people are aware of, because it really has led the way um, for the AstraZeneca vaccine? There's a study called COV002. And it's been a fundamental study of trying to work out if this vaccine makes immune responses and then if those immune immune responses are protective. And so we say, look, could we have a subgroup within this study of, of people with HIV who we can vaccinate with your sort of standard protocol? And then we can compare the responses in that group with adults in your your cohort who don't have HIV to see how they get on. So we had a few meetings, we decided on sort of a study design, we decided to go for an open label study, which means it wasn't blinded, there wasn't a placebo arm, we thought, you know, there's enough placebo data out there already. And we really wanted to sort of focus on on, on getting the vaccine into the arms of people with HIV as part of this study. And so we aim to study 60 people. Um, in total which was a number it wasn't powered to anything in particular we felt this 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 was just a number that would give us a really good sort of overview of, of the sort of responses we would see and it was also similar in size to some of the sort of the subgroups. Of adults without HIV within cov 2 So it'll be a good comparative group for that. Participants were offered the chance to kind of come forward and have the AstraZeneca vaccine using a standard dosing at that time of four to six weeks. And you might note that got extended um, not long after the study was um was started, but we used the four to six weeks design with a standard dose that everyone else gets. And then the patients were followed up, or participants sorry, were followed up. Um, pretty intensively, actually, and we're, were very kindly able to give us a number of blood draws before and after vaccination, um, and they've been still coming to clinic um, since the publication of the paper. So we've had six-month follow-up data now, and we will be getting 12-month follow-up data to see whether immune responses are, are made. And I guess the key thing, the two main outcomes we're interested in is, first of all, was this vaccine safe um, in people with HIV, or as safe as it is in everyone else who's getting it, um, and secondly, what sort of immune responses were we seeing in people with HIV? And was there any sign that your immune response might not be as good as it should be um, in, in people without HIV? And we used a number of different assays to measure that. So it was about safety and immunity and rather than efficacy, because this was too small a group to say, actually, how many people will, will be affected with SARS-CoV-2 following vaccination compared to others? This was more about, say, what do immune responses look like?
0: What were the results? You know, what did What did the immune responses look like?
1: You know, we were we were really over the moon with this because actually we were hoping when we did this study that we would be able to show at the end of it that people with HIV on therapy were going to respond to vaccines just as well as anybody else. And that's exactly what we did show. So that was great. So first of all, it was safe. You know, the side effects that we saw were all very minor and exactly the same as we'd seen in the other studies with this vaccine um, in this study. And the immune responses were great. So we looked at B-cell responses, so the antibody responses, and we looked at the T-cell responses, which often get sort of forgotten about, but which we think which we think are really important. And we showed that the B-cell responses are just the same, pretty much. You know, the, the lines pretty much overlapped compared to people with, without HIV. And the T-cell responses were great as well. And I think this was, this was a particular interest because for people with HIV we know you know the key parameter that can can be in trouble there is your CD4 T cell count you know it's one of the things we sort of we worry about and we know now that COVID nineteen, your CD four T cells are pretty critical in making a good immune response and responding to vaccines. So there was a sort of a slightly worrying overlap that actually, if your CD four T cells weren't quite working quite so well because of your HIV infection, you might not do so well with your challenge with the vaccine. But actually, the the, the the results were great and you know really strong responses. Only at day fifty six, so the results we published with you are just in that sort of short term response. We're looking at the six months and the one year results at the moment, but the fact that the results looked so Similar to people without HIV was incredibly encouraging and really sort of allowed us to give the message out that, you know, if you're living with HIV and you're on therapy and you've got a good CD4 count, your vaccine will work. You should go forward and get your vaccine and you should, you know, pushing hard to make sure that people with HIV are aware of that and don't feel, you know, that, that it's something they shouldn't be doing.
0: I mean, the, so the, the study was done in the UK and we've been incredibly lucky in our access to, to vaccines here. But obviously, you know, there's a huge burden of HIV in countries that that are really struggling with the sort of inequities in in vaccine distribution and stuff. I mean, I wondered if you wanted to comment on that and also what the results might be like. You know, you highlighted, you know, people who are on antiretroviral therapy and, you know, doing very well. Their response to the vaccine is looks like it's going to be very good. But obviously, you know, there's a huge number of people globally who don't have access to therapy, you know, or who are struggling with not being able to suppress the virus properly. And, And, you know, what the implications of that might be as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's two, two really important questions there. I mean, the first one, just in terms of vaccine access, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, we are in a very lucky situation that we're, we're you know, we're living in a place where there's access to vaccine, that, you know, there's, there's good policies in place that mean that people can get vaccinated. And the rollout across the UK has been, you know, has been striking. But I guess one of the things about um, living with HIV is we know there's a very strong correlation with you know, the number of people who who live with HIV and levels of sort of social deprivation or comorbidities or things like that. You know, that's when there is a concern that if you're battling COVID-19 in a country which isn't as well set up to kind of get vaccines um, rolled out across large populations who may well be living with HIV, then that becomes a real concern and, 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 a, and, a, and a real issue in terms of trying to sort of rebalance your policy to allow that to happen so i mean there are clearly concerns in the areas around sub-saharan africa where vaccine well, it hasn't been so good and i think there's been a bit of a delay sort of in the covid pandemic early on but now there's clearly evidence that numbers are going up and so pe- for people living with hiv and this comes on to your second point that if you if you don't have access to antiretroviral therapy and your CD four count may not be so good or your viral load isn't undetectable, then actually it could be a different story. And our study didn't look at that. And that, you know that's the next thing one would need to have an answer to. Our study was very much looking at people in that optimal situation under good control of their HIV. But if your CD four count is twenty, you've got a viral load of half a million. I think you know there's there's a reasonable basis to be very concerned. Firstly, that COVID would be more severe, but also that in that scenario, vaccination may not be as protective. And so I think, you know, there are lots of caveats around where the study takes us. I mean, hopefully, if, if we can do things properly and get therapy to the people who need it and get CD4 counts into health territories, we can then say, yes, you know, your vaccination will work. But you know, in order to be able to say that, you have to have all the other stuff that matters underpinning it. You know, you have to have the, the antiretroviral rollout programs. You have to have the ability to test, you know, and trace people, you know, around HIV so you can kind of get therapy to everybody that needs it and get those viral loads undetectable before you can then say, yes, you know, your COVID vaccination will be affected. So, yeah, then it becomes very complex. And I agree with you, you know, that once you start putting all those things together, you know, then one has to be cautious. And, and certainly there has been some data. I mean, it was an N equals one case, actually. Published in, also in Lancet HIV, showing a patient participant who had a CD4 count, I think, of twenty, high viral load, starting a therapy, and there was an evidence that they did not seroconvert when they had the Pfizer vaccine, for example. So there is certainly evidence, and in that situation, if your immune system isn't up to it, you may not make a good enough vaccine response. And we see this in other sort of other conditions, like sort of hematological malignancy work or transplant patients, where we see evidence that immune responses aren't made. So. Yeah, as you say, exactly, you know, if, if, if your CD4 count is poor or you don't have access to antiretroviral therapy, then one would certainly have more concerns. And, you know, we we need to be pushing hard the message about making sure all those boxes are taped to protect everyone that needs it.
0: And, I mean, sort of on the, on the subject of vaccines, I think, you know, one thing that everyone would like to see one day is an HIV vaccine. I wondered if you just wanted to comment on, you know, d- d- does the sort of, you know, the way the SARS CoV 2 vaccines were put together. And, and, you know, do you think this has helped the quest for an HIV vaccine at all?
1: It is such a difficult and an emotive topic. I and mean, as you say, everyone is so desperate to get a, a vaccine that will be effective and protective against HIV. I mean, certainly, so from the in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine that we were looking at, the, ch- the, the chimpanzee backbone. That has been used for an HIV vaccine. In fact, we, we published a study not that long ago called the River Study, where we used the chimp know, vaccine to carry HIV as a, a protein rather than COVID to see, look at vaccine responses in people with HIV. You know, and there there, there there is a vaccine response, but, you know, it, in itself, we didn't believe that that would be protective or therapeutic. I think one of the things that is exciting, and this has been the rise of the RNA vaccines, and this... The Pfizer vaccine, for example, which is based around this RNA technology, and that is really new. And I think we're seeing fantastic immune responses to that. And even before COVID raised its head, you know, there were, there were certainly discussions in, in the area where I work, you know, certainly around kind of targeting the HIV reservoir and even think about HIV cure one day, um, and hopefully trying to get a, a vaccine for the prevention of HIV, that these RNA vaccines, right, might raise a different sort of immune response that might be more protective. So I think it is really exciting from that point of view just in terms of vaccine technology. I think whether something immediately will come out of that and say, you know, this is, this is now the way forward for an HIV vaccine is probably less clear. I think one of the things that is also interesting is, is the rise of antibody therapy. And we know, for example, just on a slightly different tack, that, you know, if you don't make a good vaccine response to a standard vaccine, um, the potential to have an infusion or a subcutaneous injection of antibodies directly that target COVID is, is likely to be protective. And we see, we're starting to see this now become available in, in the HIV field as well. And there's been some amazing animal studies suggesting that these the broadly neutralising antibodies against HIV can provide not just long-term suppression, but there was some evidence in animal models of, of remission from, from their HIV so the animals could come off therapy. And in that scenario, one would also imagine protect, protection from infection and with these antibodies. So it's a slightly different direction that's come out of the sort of the COVID research and sort of happened in parallel with it, because, you know, people already think about probably neutralising antibodies for HIV prior to COVID, but certainly they... As, as a therapy they've been shown to be effective in COVID and that sort of supports the argument that kind of BNAPs in HIV are going to be important and actually that, that's a trial that's started in the UK a couple of weeks ago actually um, looking at the role of broadly neutralizing antibodies as potential for treatment for HIV and if they are shown to be effective the next argument would say well could you use those for prevention as well so there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of excitement around that and a lot of sort of parallels with the COVID world
0: Yeah I mean that, that would be amazing and yeah it's, it's... It's, it's great to see sort of lots of new technologies and, and old technologies being looked at in a different way. And, and hopefully, yeah, it'd be great to see some real progress in that area. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Yeah, no, well, great. And thanks for the interest in our study. It's, it, it's, it's been great to talk to you.
0: If you'd like to learn more about SARS-CoV-2 infection in adults living with HIV, then the May issue of The Lancet HIV from this year contained a review by Juan Ambrosioni and colleagues on the topic, which is well worth a read. So we hope you enjoyed this edition of the podcast. You can subscribe to this and other podcasts from Lancet Journals on Apple, Spotify, Google, many other platforms. So please do and make sure you're back next month when we continue the conversation.